like I was, as I was saying, you don't go through the trauma unscathed. On the outside, I was a successful, smart lawyer. On the inside, I was a self-loathing woman with no self-worth. Um, the decisions I made in relationships, the decisions that I didn't make because of my fear was all because of this 18 months of my life. Welcome everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. So today I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Vanessa Jass. Vanessa is a Toronto-based family and real estate lawyer, a motivational speaker, and upcoming author and she has also recently launched and is the CEO of her own charity known as Survivors Unleashed. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. So uh, I actually had the pleasure of hearing you um, share your remarkable story earlier this year, but our listeners have not had the pleasure. So can you please just give us a little bit of info of... Um, you know, what we're, uh, what we're in for today. So my story um, doesn't begin um, back in the 90s, but it certainly begins when I was a teenager and I was uh, coerced into the sex trafficking world in Canada. And um, what I spoke about at Speaker Slam was about a particular night that changed the trajectory of my life. It literally was a two millimeter shift that changed my entire life. And the shift was that I had worn sneakers instead of high heels that night in an attempt to run away. And um, because I had sneakers on, I was able to run up a sidewalk, which had ice on it. And my dear friend, Kelly, who was 17 at the time, wasn't able to move as fast as me in the sidewalk. I got picked up by a car. She didn't. And that was the last time I saw her alive because the next car that picked her up was a random murderer and they murdered her that night. And uh, yeah, so the, me leaving her on that sidewalk was the last time I I saw her and um, I've been riddled with uh, survivor's guilt my whole life, um, despite the immense success that I've had. I've just had this guilt of why was I able to survive that night and why was she taken and and basically just guilty from, you know, wearing sneakers that night, basically. And so I decided to start telling my story in 2018. And uh, Speaker Slam in February was the first time that I've publicly spoken out loud about my experience in the sex trafficking world. Wow. It's remarkable to know that you're here today to to tell us that story, to to know that you're alive, to to tell us something like that. And you know, we're we're this episode we're gonna we're gonna break it down and go through all of it. But knowing that you had gone through so much adversity, um, I really want to go back in time and I want to learn what was your family life like growing up? So my family life wasn't ideal um in any circumstances. I did grow up in a physically abusive home. Uh, my brother and I were physically abused um, from a very young age to our teens. And um, at the time, um, my biological father, he just wasn't present because his job took him out of town a lot. So he wasn't aware of the abuse. A lot of the people in the community were not aware of the physical abuse, but it was very physically and emotionally ab abusive behavior that was directed at me and my older brother. My brother was two years older than me. So when my brother was 17, he was, you know, thrown out of the house. And I guess my time was limited there too, because at 17, I was thrown out of the house. I was a Sunday school teacher. I was a very 
um, geeky child in that I got straight A classes. I didn't have to study much. I read a lot. I spent a lot of time in my room reading um, and just gaining my knowledge from books and just being that 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 student, that uh, studious child. I was obedient. And um, and then, you know, in my teens, I started to rebel a little bit because I came from a very strict household that we were, you know, expected to follow the rules. We weren't, ex- we weren't allowed to drink. We weren't allowed to smoke or anything like that. So, you know, I started hanging with um, some people that, you know, my cousins and stuff, we were doing natural things. We were experimenting with alcohol. We were experimenting with cigarettes and and so I started to have a, I uh, had a drink when I was 17 and I got caught drinking. And so that kind of started this downhill. You got caught by your father? No, I got caught. Uh, I didn't get caught in the act. I got caught with a little bit of alcohol that me and my friends had had over the weekend. <laughs> and um, I got grounded for a month or something after they found the liquor. So, you know, that was my first infraction when I was about 17. And um it just, when you look back at it, it's kind of ridiculous what kids are doing now. But back then, drinking was a faux pas. And so I got caught drinking and I got grounded. So I was only allowed to go to my job and then come back. And then, you know, as time went on, I wanted to hang out with the cool kids, you know, because I wasn't one of the cool kids at the time. And so we smoked cigarettes, we were drinking a little bit more, and I wasn't following the rules that I had followed so dutifully up to the time I was 17. So I think maybe about after a couple of times of me drinking, uh, I was asked to leave because I didn't want to follow the rules, quote unquote. So um, I ended up being homeless. I ended up going to a rooming house um, that my grandfather had found for me, thought he was doing a good thing. And he um, found, he set me up in the rooming house. I had a part-time job. I had enough money, you know, during the summer to pay for my room that was in a house with some older gentlemen. I was the only female. They never usually let females in the rooming house, but I was the only young female, but he thought he was doing a good thing. And I was uh, immediately targeted when I got into that house. So I suffered a sexual assault when I was in that house from an older gentleman. And um, it happened twice. And after the second time, I knew I had to get out of the house, but I didn't really have any place to go. So I was just coach surfing, trying to find, keep a place to live. I was obviously traumatized as a child, re-traumatized at that early age, thinking, you know, you know, not thinking that I could do anything about it. I just accepted it and was like, okay, I need to find another place to live kind of thing. And so I, I just got a couple of apartments that didn't work out. And, and then I was pretty much homeless. I didn't have money for an apartment. I had by that time not able to um, keep up with my grades that I had in previous years because I was working so much hours in order to, you know, buy food or alcohol or whatever it was that I was trying to like numb myself with and um, ended up you know, just on people's couches and sleeping on people's couches until that welcome was worn out. And um, I reached out to my older brother who was living in Halifax at the time or in Dartmouth, which is their twin cities at the time. And so I said, you know, I have no place else to go. I can't go home because I'm not following the rules. And so I wasn't welcome there and uh, went to the city and stayed in his rooming house with him and his friend in one room while I got a job at McDonald's. And I I started high school there because I knew that I could get to university. I had applied for university before I had to quit school. I was working part-time at McDonald's and trying to feed myself on the two days a week that I was working. I was trying to feed my brother and his friend on the two days of work that I was, you know, the two days a week pay that I was earning. And sometimes they would give us free food back in the day. And that wasn't enough to feed the three of us. It wasn't enough to feed the two of us. 
Um, and so he reached out for help from somebody and that somebody uh, turned out to be my future perpetrator. That happened in about a six-month period between the time that I was homeless and the time that I ended up in, in the city with my brother. Um, after I, uh, I got introduced to his friend that he worked for, I basically was still trying to go to school and survive. And I was introduced to girls, like girls I would notice coming in and out of the house. Like I was in a section of the house that I was kept separate from the girls, but I was sleeping on the floor. I was going to McDonald's. I was in grade 12. So I was really trying to graduate because I knew that I, I needed to graduate, but it just wasn't working out. And I was, we were literally starving, me and my brother. And the girls started saying, you know, hey, you know, you should do this. You should do this. And, and I was like, no, I don't know where you're going. You're dressed up. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm just going to go to school and I'm going to work my job at McDonald's because that's all I'd known. As a teenager, you work your part-time job and you go to school. And so I um, was doing that for a while. And then I was told that, uh, well, the colder weather was there. And then I was told by the landlord, quote unquote, that I had to leave the place. I couldn't stay there in the house anymore unless I did the same thing that the other people did. So I didn't really know what that was because <laughs> I was so naive at that point in my life. Um, so they're like, you're just going to go out. You're going to do this. Oh, you do, you, you do it for free anyway. So you'll be able to do it for money. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so they did my hair and they dressed me up in their clothes and they took me over there. Like he put me out, like they called turned out. So I got turned out that night by the pimp. It's, um, I mean, like just, just listening to the story and the, the trajectory of it, seeing the way it's happened. And I mean, we can, we can look back and saying that, you know, the life at home wasn't the greatest, which is why it kind of led you to go to these areas. But why do you think it was so difficult to make amends at home? And like, did your, did your family have any idea, your, even your grandfather, your brother, did they have any idea what was happening here? No, 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 no. In the rooming house, nobody knew about the rooming house um, I only started talking about that two years ago. Everything was oh, wow. just buried. I couldn't tell my parents that happened in that house. It just was a different time, um, different time, different relationship with the parents. It wasn't like that nurturing, loving relationship. So it was, you do what we say. And if you don't do it, then you get out. So there was a couple of times where I tried to go home and it was just conflict with the stepmother um, and myself, my father, it just it wasn't possible. If it was possible, I would have stayed in my house and went to school, but it wasn't possible at the time. And if you have no place to go, I went with my brother, who was my older brother, who I thought I'd be safe with. Do you, are you and your brothers, do you guys still speak? No, we don't speak at the time. Uh, we don't speak. No, we don't speak. We don't have a relationship. Okay. I mean, like this, this whole happened in Halifax, right? Yeah. In Nova Scotia. Yeah. Um, was it that now now that you can look look back and you know how human trafficking, you have a lot of knowledge on it. Uh, you're well-educated in it. Was it that Halifax was like a hub for this kind of stuff or was this happening all across Canada? Well, at the time, I didn't know anything about it. I was thinking I'm going to be sleeping in a park or I'm going to do what they tell me to do. Um, and then after the first night, a piece of you disappears or a piece of me disappeared because you're traumatized. Um, the trauma sets in and then you're coached and you're trained and you're brainwashed and you're coerced and you're watched and you're a prisoner. You don't get food to eat unless asking for $5 a day. You don't get, you know, you don't get anything. You don't get any freedom. You, 
you're not allowed to hang around your friends. You're allowed to contact your family, but it's monitored. You know, you're constantly under watch. It, you're not a free person. It is pretty much slavery. Like you are just not free. Um, so they told me in the beginning, you know, after the first night, I mean, you're just trained. You're like I said, you're trained. They tell you, you don't want to be one of the girls that go up the line. That's what they would call it. You don't want to be the girls that go up to Toronto. You're never going to be seen again. You'll either get murdered or you're going to Niagara Falls. And then you're in the States. You go up to up to Niagara Falls, you're going to go to New York. If you go up the line, you're just never going to be seen again. So that was the constant threat. If you don't do what we say, we'll just send you up the line. You'll get sold up the line. <laughs> and so you do what you're told because, well, your choices are, okay, am I going to stay in Halifax where I'm reasonably close to my family or am I going to go up the line? God knows where. Like, I mean, it's just talked about amongst the, the girls um, on the stroll and um, the girls that are with your pimp, uh, this is what happens. You either you either are you're with a uh, physically abusive pimp or you're with the pimps that traffic you. And at that time, the first pimp was not he was not the type to traffic the girls outside of Halifax. So we we were local. Was it was it difficult to to approach the police in these times? Oh, you were just you were warned. You were just uh, you just didn't go to the police. You didn't talk to the police when the police came by and talked to you. You needed to be quiet. You were warned. It was very clear that you were not allowed to talk to the police. I mean, it was also very clear, you know, what would happen to girls if they turned on the pimps uh, or were a witness or. You just weren't allowed to. You just weren't not permitted to do it. They would find you. You were constantly drilled in your head about how powerful the pimp was and how how he would be able to find you. Um, and the other girls reiterated these stories. They co collaborated these stories with you, like when you were working. I mean, whether it was the ones that you were working with with that pimp or the ones that were with other pimps, they all the stories were backed up. So, I mean, you're entering inside this game and that's what they call it. They call it the game. You're entered into the game. You're turned out into the game and, and you learn from the people that are already in the game. So you're, you're marginalized from regular people. And then every day your contact is with people that are in the game, pimps or girls. Your world is very narrow. You don't know much else at that point. No. How old were majority of these uh, females? They went from 13 to 18, 19. The fear was not just from the pimps and the girls. The fear was from the Johns because girls would be murdered. Um, and was this happening often? The mur oh, murders? yeah. That happened in Halifax. There was murders in Halifax. There's murders all across Canada. The girls in their network would know who was killed and who was went missing and things. So you would hear about it. Um, they gave you things and tips on how to keep safe and things like that. And that particular pimp would follow us in the cars. And so, again, I don't know if it was following us for safety or following us for surveillance. Um, but, uh, you were definitely, we were made aware that somebody was always around looking and we were always told, you know, the reason why that person got killed was because they didn't have a pimp or the reason that girl got killed is because she, she went with this one who doesn't protect her. You know, it was just, it was always, always preached to us about why it was so important that we stayed loyal to that pimp or why we had to make sure that he was safe, you know? So we did not, our lives were not our concern. Our only concern was to make money for him and to make sure he was safe um, and just protect him. 
so eventually there was a night, um, as you mentioned earlier, that where it was the beginning of the of the end of this. Yeah. So in my heart and soul, I knew I should not be at that spot doing that. And I spoke about that in my speech, like the whole time, like I, I was an honor student. I made nineties in class. I was educated and I, I didn't graduate, but I knew that I was supposed to be in going to Dalhousie. I would see the other students, you know, partying because we'd be standing there and I would see the students. Halifax is a very, um, big university town. So I would see the students and, and I would always picture myself. Like I was like, why, why am I standing here? Why am I doing this to myself? Why am I here? How do I get out? Uh, you know, how do I change things? It's almost impossible how to change things. And I think it was like six months in. So I, he turned me out in October at the end of October. And I think it was February that I was, I was really getting frustrated with the, you know, the lack of freedom. I didn't have any con, not really a lot of contact with my family. Um, you know, it was just getting to my soul. So I said, I have to make a plan. I have to get out. I have to find a way to get away from this guy. So the number one rule was, you know, you never steal money from the pimp. You never steal money from the pimp. Like, so I was trying to think of a way that I could just keep $20 to myself because he would follow us around and he would be able to tell what we were doing and how much money we made and things. And, and the other girls that the senior girls would tell us, would tell them how much the younger ones would make. And so I just, was thinking that I would be able to like sneak $20 to myself, like just keep $20 because the ticket was $9 to get from Halifax to my hometown, a one-way ticket. And I just said, okay, just get $9 and then get some money for, you know, some food or something. And then uh, a taxi, get a taxi. I would get one of the taxi drivers to drive me up to the bus stop. So I only was trying to make not make $20. I was trying to keep $20 and hide it in the lining of my coat or something. Cause if we got caught stealing money, you just got the crap beat out of you. Like it was just, you know, it was just common knowledge. So just needed to get that $20. And, um, I was starting to rebel. And one of the ways that I rebelled that night was by not wearing my uniform. Our uniforms were very clear. You had to wear skirts up to your butt. You had to wear the high heels and you had to wear the little tops and the little jackets and you had to be done up. And, and that night I wore jeans and sneakers and that was a no, no. And I got away with it. It was because he was somewhere else and he didn't drive us over. So um, me and Kelly went over together in a taxi. And when we got there, she had her shoes on and stuff and I had sneakers and jeans. So yeah, that's, now I look back at it. I'm just thinking in hindsight, like, wow, like I thought I was really doing something powerful, but uh, I just tried to get that uh, $20 and the first car that came by they were obviously looking at Kelly. She was younger. Um, and uh, they pulled around the corner and went up the hill. Halifax has a lot of hills. So they pulled around the corner and they went up the hill. And I saw them and I just ran up the hill. It was ice and because it was the dead of winter. It was February 26th. And um, went up the hill and turned the corner and I ran up after it and jumped in the car. And I remember looking back and seeing Kelly like struggling to get around the corner on the heels and the little heels that we had to wear and just waved at her and kind of joked because we were, we were friends. We were like almost like sisters because we shared a, a house, a part of the house. And, uh, he waved and was like, ha ha ha, you know, I got the car first. I'm going to get warm and I'm going first. And, but in my mind, I was thinking, thank God I'm going to get this, this money to hide away and, and get my bus home. And so after the uh, trick, I went back and guy drops me off and I had, money hidden away on the lining of my jacket. And I was waiting for Kelly to get back and waited. Were you guys going to escape together? No, 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 no. We were, no, we weren't. She was from another part of the province. She was a, a group home child that uh, 
was homeless and he found her too. So he would go, he would go around the, like the places where homeless kids would hang out malls. Yeah. The group homes, they were always like running from the group homes and she was a group home kid. She was a group home team. Didn't want to be in a group home. Didn't have a place to go. And so he took her in and then turned her out too. I mean, that was the, that was the theme. Fight with mm-hmm. your parents. You're going to get turned out. Like, you know, cause you're available. Um, and, and, and we don't know that we're being targeted, you know, when you're a 17-year-old kid, you just don't know that you're being targeted because you're not a member of the game. Everybody that's around him knows what's going on. And that's a common theme, like, even in today when they're trying to get kids. Like, you just don't know what's in front of you. But they know what's in front of them, you know, and that's how they target. So Kelly, um, no, I wasn't trying to escape with Kelly. And I didn't tell Kelly my plans because you couldn't trust anybody, Um Kelly had to take care of herself and might have thrown me under the bus, so to speak. And, uh, and then I would, don't know what would have happened to me, but she wouldn't keep my secret safe. So I didn't, you know, wouldn't have told her. So I just got back and waited for her and she didn't return after an hour. And so, um, nobody knew where she went. And so when she didn't return after an hour, the time's ticking, like I'm trying to go to the bus station, but I care about Kelly. So I'm like, okay, I got to find this. I got to find Kelly. So two hours, no Kelly. Three hours, no Kelly. And then, and then you know that something's wrong. Nobody knew where she went. They just knew that she was in a taxi. You know, you just know something's wrong. So we're, I'm interviewing taxis. Every taxi that comes by, I'm saying, you know, check to see where this call went. Check to see where this call went. And then, um, you know, did you, do you remember picking her up? Do you remember where the call went? Or back then they would you know, keep notes by paper. So they would call the dispatcher. And then we found out what street that she went to. And we went over to the street and we went up and down the street trying to find out. They didn't know the address. They just said they got out on this street. So we, we were going up and down the street and it was a dead end street. And there was an apartment at the, almost at the end and it was Rose street. And, um, we didn't see her. We didn't see any signs of her, no signs of life, no traffic or anything. And we looked until like probably four o'clock in the morning. So we didn't find her and I went back to the house and was hoping, I was praying that she was out drinking with her friends because we weren't allowed to drink. We weren't allowed to do drugs, very strict rules. So I thought maybe she, she met up with some friends and she was drunk or something and she was too, too afraid to come home, but she wasn't there. And then uh, it wasn't until the next morning when I was laying in bed and, you know, I just woke up and I heard the news on the radio and it said they found a a girl's body in a garbage can um, on Rose Street. So I knew Immediately it was her and I jumped out of bed and just went down to, to her room to see if she was there and she wasn't there and I knew it was her. So, uh, yeah, I was in shock and called the police. I didn't call the police first. I had to call the pimp first because, you know, that was the rule. We were allowed to call the police. So I was warned and, you know, don't you dare say anything. Just say that you're her roommate. And so I um I called them and told them, you know, I think that might be my roommate that you found and and then that day I had to go ID her. So I was terrified, shocked, completely affected for the rest of my life from that situation. Yeah, that was uh, the beginning of my quest to escape the world because that same, the next day or that same day that I had to ID her and was traumatized from that, I was forced to go back in the very spot and work when we didn't even know who the murderer was at that point in time. So you know, um, then I knew I was, I was, I have to get out. I have to get out somehow or I'm going to end up dead. I will be dead. So somebody will either kill me on the street or somebody or some, or he'll kill me because I'm going to escape one of the, one of the other. What happened next? Like, how did you, how did, how did you get out? Oh, 
I just took these terrible decisions that I thought were better decisions. Like, as I thought, uh, you know, again, being naive, I wasn't a person that grew up in, you know, a bad neighborhood or anything like that. I didn't know, but the girls, the other girls would be like, you know, coercing me and talking me up about these other pimps that I should go with. And, you know, they'll treat you good and they'll do this and they'll do that. And they're not worried about this guy. And so I I got talked into by another female to go with this other guy. And immediately after I chose to go with that guy, we called it chose. If you chose another man, it was called choosing a pimp. So um, we were not allowed to talk to other black men or look at them because if you looked at the black guy and, and, or the other pimp and your eyes met that meant that you chose this other pimp. So whenever a black guy came around, you had to like put your head down in submission. You couldn't like look at the black man from eye to eye because you'd be afraid that you were choosing one of the ones that took girls up the line or one of the ones that beat their girls out in public or, you know, terrible pimps. So, you know, that's what it was called. You chose a man. I'm just going back to the lingo. Sorry. It's hard to talk about these words. No, no, it's, a, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Whatever <laughs> so, you're comfortable with. Um, you know, I chose a guy that immediately had me in a car like three hours later, taking me to Montreal. So it was going to traffic me immediately, but promised me that that wouldn't happen once I chose him. I chose him to get away from the first guy because I thought I'd be safe. No, I was on my way to Montreal and then I had to jump out in the highway, not in the highway. We were stopped at a light in a Montreal highway and jumped out and ran um, because I was terrified. Um, I was gone against my will. And here I am with these pimps and the girls in the car and we're being driven. And we were going to Montreal first. And all I remember was you, you can't go to Niagara Falls. You can't go to Toronto. You can't go to these big cities or you're going to be dead, right? Was it like, if you go to these cities, someone will find you kind of thing or? No, you're either going to be traded over the border. Your pimp will take you over the border and then you never come back or you um, get murdered. Bad date, um, you know, because it's a bigger city. There's crazier people. Bad date, getting murdered or yeah. being taken over to the States. New York City was the biggest thing because it was so close to Toronto. So people would like say, you're going to New York City. And I couldn't even imagine what it would be like trying to survive the streets in New York City. So I was terrified. I jumped out and he came chasing after me, but I was able to get to a phone booth and keep him out of the phone booth while he was trying to, they were trying to drag me out of the phone booth and get me back in the car. And I was able to dial 911 on the phone booth and the police were coming and then they left, they left me there. So I was able to escape that and got back to Nova Scotia and um, ended up talking to the first pimp and he was very, you know, oh, you know, it's okay. You know, very forgiving and loving and trying to get me there. And I went back because part of the coercion is, you know, just to be that loving person that you never had as a kid, you know, that person that they want. It's part of their game, show you love and coerce you by feelings and things. So I um, went back and I had a very good reminding reminder about why I shouldn't have left by, you know, assault, assaulting me and beating me. Um, and so that was the first time I chose. And then by the third time me trying, I just had this logic that I had to leave to somebody who was more crazy, more dangerous, had more influence, was part of a gang. I thought that that would get me away from the first guy. And that's what I did. I kept choosing bad people until I got to one of the worst. And, uh, 
went to that person. And so that was the hardest person it was to escape from him. And that's who I ended up escaping from in the long run after the 18 months. It took me a while, but I ended up escaping him because he had trafficked me. He was the one that, he was one of the ones that trafficked the girls all across Canada and the States. And so he had trafficked me to um, uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Winnipeg. Um, Toronto was next, but I escaped in Ottawa. So I didn't have to go to Toronto because I, <laughs> I just couldn't go to Toronto. I just was like, I have to get out of these. I have to get out. Like, I mean, a desperation and God got me out the night in Ottawa when I did finally escape. I did finally escape in Ottawa. So, so from then onwards, you know, you, you escape, you're out of this world. Um, I know that your journey then starts to, to law school. Oh yeah. But before law school, like my journey, you know, I was this teenager and my dad, you know, got me in an office doing what he thought was best, got me in an office right away. And oh, your dad got you an office job? Yeah. Cause he had companies. So I went to work for his company and it was like within two weeks. So here I am running for my life in Ottawa, <laughs> running for my life, literally in Ottawa. I end up in the small town and he's like, okay, you're going to go to work. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so no counseling, nothing, <laughs> no, no treatment, just go to work. You have to get a job. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I start working and I work for him and like immediately, and then I worked for him for about a year. And then I decided that I was going to go to university. And so I had to go back to high school. So I think it was about a year. And then I was back in high school when my son was about nine months old. And um, I had to go back and take courses to get into university. And I did. And then I received a scholarship to go to university at Dalhousie. And then I, I finished my first degree at St. Mary's. Amazing. And then I got into law school <laughs> while I was at St. Mary's. And then I went to law school. But I want to I wanna, I wanna talk back about something. Mm -hmm. The word pimp. Um, I, I personally do my best not to use that word. Because I know that there is a connotation. You know, I know that that, that word holds weight. Um, how do you feel when you hear about it, like in, in music and it's being thrown around, like it's nothing, but it means something far deeper. Well, it's a part of hip hop culture to use the word pimp. Like it's just, it's the world we live in, but I don't think, uh, to myself personally, it doesn't really affect me because, um, anybody who's probably using the word loosely was not affected by the real meaning of the word. I mean, I've been at conferences where, vice police are talking about the word pimp and, and their connotation is from a knowledge of what power the pimp has over the people that they traffic. Um, their knowledge of it, of the violence that is, you know, divvied out to the people that they're trafficking, the fear that they're inflicting on their victims. It's different. When you hear it in a song, it's not the same. So I'm not going to be affected by it. Um, but when I do go to these conferences, like I cannot listen to those speeches by the police officers because there's too much triggering. Mm. Um, and so I have to leave the room. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and at, maybe not at that point when you were younger, but did you, did you ever get to seek some counseling for? No, I think that the depression started while I was in um, university. I think it was my first bout of depression. But when you're young, you're not sure. And it's so hard to believe, but... Uh, I was not sure what was causing the depression. Um, all I thought, I thought it was external circumstances that were causing me to be sad. Um, but it was all internal. It was trauma. It was childhood trauma. It was adolescent trauma. It was adult trauma um, and recurring trauma, like 
you don't come out of something like I came out of um, clean. Uh, you don't come out unaffected. And so I think when I was just doing my schooling and doing and and excelling at school again and, and going to law school and raising my son, I would, I just kept myself busy. I had a hundred hobbies. So I would just keep myself completely busy. My brain or my body never had any time to process what I was going through. So it would come up in the forms of depression, uh, the recurring depression. It wasn't just about a depression. When I, when I would get depressed, it was like suicidal. Um, and people would say, you know, what's wrong? You have everything. You're a lawyer or you're going to law school. Like you should be happy. You should be this. You should be that. And I never even knew the words because it was a secret and it was a well-kept secret about my life. I could not tell them, well, I just didn't even have the words myself to describe why I was so depressed. I would, I would not know why I was so depressed because I didn't know what my diagnosis probably really was. Doctors would just say, oh, you're just depressed. You're depressed. Take this medication. I wouldn't take the medication. They would just take this medication. Do this, do this. Um, I just never knew to my core what was causing it until, you know, being a lawyer is very, very stressful. Um, and I got to the point where I was just unable to cope anymore with the stress of having my own firm and the stress of that is put on you by your clients. And I did family law, which is a very stressful area of law. And I just didn't have coping skills. And I just really didn't understand why I couldn't handle anything anymore because I'd handled so much in my life. And it wasn't until then when I really sought out some trauma-related um, trauma related, uh, therapy because I didn't even think about PTSD or complex PTSD. This was how many years after? Well, I think it was, I was a lawyer for about 15 years. And then I was just like, okay, uh, I can't do this. I need a break. I need to shut down. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I was off work for about two years. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Just because I just didn't know what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And the, the, I used to get so much anxiety and chest pains and physical um, and migraines and physical uh, symptoms. And the doctors were just baffled. They didn't know why I was so sick until I went to a therapist and she was saying, uh, and it was the first time that I was honest with the therapist. So Halifax is a very small town and I was terrified of people finding out about my past. This, this big cloud with the past on it always was in behind my head, the past. Or people are going to find out about your past. Like people would tell me, oh, you can't do this because of your past. Or, you know, how could you run for politics about your past? Like, you know, even family members, well, you can't do this because of your past. Like it was always mentioned, my past. <laughs> and so I really, truly believed that my past would ruin me. My past would ruin my legal career. My past would take away my law degree and would take away my license to be a lawyer. My clients would all find out how disgusting I was from my past and that they would leave me. And so it was a well-kept secret. I mean, I had scripts for people to say, oh, are you Vanessa Times? This Vanessa Times? I'd be like, no, no, that's the other Vanessa Times. You know, there's two other Vanessa Times in this town. So I would be able to say, oh no, that's the other Vanessa Times, right? (laughs) Just to hide in my identity, hide in plain sight, so to speak. I mean, I would be at the provincial um, building. It's called Province House in Nova Scotia. And it's literally on the block where Kelly where I last saw Kelly walking. So every time I went to a ministerial function because I was a well-respected lawyer, I would look out the window, I'd walk to my car, I would be thinking I'm walking the same block where Kelly last walked. So I knew about the secret, but nobody else did. So um, 
it was just something that I never was honest about. So this counselor was the first person that I was actually honest with about my life circumstances, about my teenage life, about Kelly, about everything. And, you know, she was, she shocked me after our very first initial meeting saying, this is one of the most heroic stories I've ever heard in my career. You are have to be in the top 10. And I was like, what? Why? Like, what's she talking about? (laughs) I didn't even understand the gravity of what she was saying. And then she, uh, you know, they basically diagnosed me with complex post or complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is recurring trauma, um, recurring long-term trauma. And you, like I was, as I was saying, you don't go through the trauma unscathed. On the outside, I was a successful, smart lawyer. On the inside, I was a self-loathing uh, woman with no self-worth. Um, the decisions I made in relationships, the decisions I made with my um the decisions that I didn't make because of my fear was all because of this 18 months of my life. So again, this was the very first time that I, t- I spoke openly to anybody and um, I started to think differently about my experience. So that was not until about 2016 or something. Yeah. So being at such a vulnerable place at, at a young age um, with everything that you've gone through, were you ever cautious or insecure when approaching romantic relationships in your adult life? Oh, yes. You're, yes. <laughs> I'm laughing, but not laughing at the same time. Um, romantic relationships were a mess. I thought that love was a very dark thing. I didn't know what love was. I didn't know that love could be kind. I didn't know love could be gentle and nurturing and... I thought love came with physical violence, emotional turmoil. I thought love came from anxiety, that feeling of anxiety in your, your, in your stomach, but it didn't. Love is very beautiful. Um, I didn't know that. So my relationships mostly mirrored the ugly kind of love. Um, so that led to a lot of personal turmoil that you know, my personal life was always a mess. My professional life was on point. Like I was the best lawyer for everybody. I was an advocate in court fighting for people's rights, but then I would go home and be in an abusive relationship, you know, physical relationship. So yeah, no, my relationships were a mess because of the trauma suffered as a teen. Approaching men were messed up. Um, The black men situation, like I never had confidence with black men because I was trained very early on about what black men were all about. And, and I'm saying this quote unquote, obviously I love the black man. Um, but it's just like when you're trained at such a young age and you have these stories and fed to your mind or to the mind, yes, everything was warped relationships, friendships, every kind of interpersonal relationship was warped except for the, my professional ones. My professional ones were always straight. What? But, um, I I do know that you're, you're married now. You're happily, happily married. You're happily married now. <laughs> what was different about that relationship that made it, um, that, that made it possible for you to see that, you know, love is this, this amazing thing? Well, I'd love to give all the credit to my husband because he's a wonderful guy. <laughs> but my first truly loving relationship was with my first um, love in university who knew about my past, um, was super supportive very loving, actually showed me what real, true, unconditional love was. 
So having that as the first relationship post-trafficking, you know, I had latched onto that so strongly. And then he had to go back to India because he was an international student. So um, all my relationships never measured up to that until I met my current husband. And so when I met my current husband and his qualities and how he loved me and how he he supported me and how he just, you know, he is my number one fan. He is the one that is lifting me up and just making me do these amazing things because he's the one that encouraged me to go public. I always thought that my husband would be ashamed of my story, would be ashamed of my life. Um, I never thought that somebody could love me through it. I never thought that somebody could support me. I never thought that somebody could just love that awful, ugly, disgusting part of me. <laughs> and he does. He loves every little last bit of me, <laughs> good or bad. He loves me through everything and is 110% supportive of me doing this venture, telling my story, being open about it because he knows uh, he's a police officer for Toronto Police. So he sees the other side of life and he he knows that my story is inspirational. He's the one that said, you must tell your story. He pressured me to move to Ontario. He knew that I was suffering in Halifax. In Halifax- You guys met in Halifax? We met down south. <laughs> okay. Because in a depression, I would get a depression and I would uh, go, I would leave. I would just leave my uh, surroundings for a week. And so I had left on my own and went down south by myself and met him down south while he was there with to his the friends. No, to the Punta Canners in Dominican. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and so I was alone and he would see me eating alone. And then we talked and it was just like, he's a police officer, so- I was at the time doing my um, master's in law um, in international human trafficking and how the criminal laws wouldn't support the treaties that uh, that the UN was proposing at the time. And this was in like 2011-ish, 2012. And I met him in 2013. So when I met and we started talking, he was talking about his interest in sex trafficking and human trafficking unit in Toronto. And I was saying, oh, wow, you know, I'm doing my thesis in that. And so we immediately clicked, but he didn't know why I was doing the thesis in that. Like that was a part of me trying to like do something like on the down low about sex trafficking because it was in the headlines and it was starting to gain like international attention. Like sex trafficking is a thing. It happens. It's in Canada. It's in the United States. So that, that was my little secretive way of trying to do something for sex trafficking, but not telling my secret. So um, anyway, I met him and uh, yeah, the rest is history. We're still together. <laughs> so I mean, in our friendship, because we were friends, because we didn't live in the same province, um, he and I was coming out of another, you know, abusive relationship. And uh, in our friendship, we shared our secrets. And in our friendship, we told everything to each other and he still loved me as a friend and he just, he just loved me and the love was so beautiful. I couldn't ignore it. So, I mean, I was just like, wow, this guy really loves me <laughs> and he still does. You know, you know, tell us more about, you know, you know, in your, your journey in law school, you're, um, you know, you've graduated, uh, you've done your, um, you've done your undergrad in sociology. So I did my undergrad in, um, sociology with a concentration in, um, the criminal justice system or criminology. So I was on my way to um, being um, a parole officer. I wanted to work in the prisons. <laughs> it was my, it was my, it was my calling just to be on the national parole board. I really wanted to be on the national parole board because I thought that I could help people redo their lives. Now, if you look back at it, and what I didn't realize, hindsight's twenty twenty. 
I thought I would be excellent at a profession that would help people rehabilitate their lives. Now, because I did. And so if I could do it, I could help other people do it. <laughs> so that's what drove me to that. And um, so, you know, my my friend from India, he was saying, you know, you get straight A's. Why are you not applying to law school? Why do you want to be a parole officer? But for me in my past, anything that wasn't on the street was a good career. <laughs> so I was like, I could be a social worker. I could be a parole officer. And he was just, he pushed me to aim higher. You know, he came from a very wealthy Indian family in New Delhi. And so, you know, their goals are, you know, yeah, where, their goals my, are big. That's where my family's from. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no social workers in the family. <laughs> so <laughs> if I was going to be a member of that family, I, I needed to go to law school. <laughs> so he was just like, apply to law school, get better grades. You need to get better grades. Like, even my parents didn't harp on my grades as much as he did. And he was just like that, that person in my undergrad saying, you only got an A minus. Why would you only get an A minus? <laughs> I would be like, Oh my God. But he pushed me like nobody had ever pushed me with love, you know, thinking about my future. Um, and, uh, yeah, he pushed me and I applied and I got in. And, uh, so the rest is history. And, and where did your passion for family law stem from? So I just knew all through law school, I, you know, I didn't fit in with the other students. I obviously was a marginalized student. I was a single mom and I was a single mom black law student and very well aware that I was a black student in Nova Scotia where there wasn't very many black law students there. Um, and I just didn't fit in with the regular students. I, uh, I just didn't, well, if you look at my life and look at their lives and the people that were in law school, that is not my crowd. That is not what I experienced in my life. So it was very hard to build rapport with those people. It was very hard to maintain friendships with those students. And so, um, you know, I just had a very different experience in law school. I wasn't trying to be uh, working for corporations. I wasn't trying to be uh, getting rich. You know, as I said before, anything was golden. I was just happy. I was in law school. <laughs> Here I am going to law school, this girl uh, who came from my life. And this all had to be like internal jubilation. Okay. Now my parents would probably realize that, you know, wow, she's came this far. Like, you know, she's amazing. Or maybe they didn't say amazing, but you know, they were proud of me. My dad was certainly proud of me because they knew the struggles. They, the ones that helped me through the struggles with my son. But, um, you know, my internal, my internal jubilation was just internal because nobody knew my life but I didn't get along. And I just knew that I had to help people. I've always known that I wanted to help people in their, in their lives, whatever I could do, I was going to serve individuals. And so when I had taken family law, I knew I loved family law. I thought it was going to be criminal. I thought it was going to be criminal because I had a criminology background, but then first year criminal law took that out of me. So I knew that wasn't going to happen. And then uh, I decided to just move forward in the family law direction. And that's where I focused my training on. And in my articling position, I went to a, a person that did family law for 40 years and learned the trade, learned how to be a family law lawyer. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced um, in, the, in, the, in the world of family law? My biggest challenge that I have never been public about was, and it's one of the stories that I share in my book, was being in Halifax and doing children's aid law and being around individuals that were in the sex trafficking world when I was in it, not, you know, six, seven years ago before then, and trying to hide in plain sight, wondering if they could recognize me, wondering if they knew who I was, you know, 
did they know who I was? <laughs> I just didn't know. I would go into court, they would see me, and I would say, okay, well, nobody said anything. Nobody said anything at all. Um, so my secret's safe. Or one time when there was a case involving one of the pimps from the family that I was at, and I was waiting for that pimp to walk in the courthouse because I was on the other side of the file. And I waited for that pimp and I was waiting and for them to say, and, and my secret would be out. That was the biggest challenge. Being in such a small town where people knew my face from those times, even though it was only 18 months, they would recognize me. And if my secret would be told, there's a, there's a tabloid in Halifax called Frank. And, you know, people's secrets were outed all the time. Lawyers' secrets were outed all the time because it sold papers. Everybody likes to see a lawyer having a hard time. <laughs> and I knew that if they knew anything, it would be in that thing, that Frank magazine. And every month it came out, I waited. Every month I came out, it came out, I waited to see if my face would be in it or my name would be in it. That's, that's the biggest challenge I had as being a lawyer. Is it hard to not bring that kind of stuff home with you? I don't think I didn't bring it home. Um, you know, family law is like one of those things that you have to have an arm's length away from. So right. as a lawyer, we're not emotionally involved. We're not personally involved. So we're not, we don't usually bring it home. The biggest thing that we brought home for me was, you know, relationships don't work. <laughs> and because of my personal life, that was, uh, that was true. You know, relationships don't work. Right. So I don't think that anymore because my relationship is still working. So. I hear Canada has a 50% divorce rate. I mean, I hear about these things and, and being a young guy that wants to eventually one day get married and start a family, that kind of kind of does discourage you a bit. Does it really discourage you? Oh, <laughs> it I is mean, over 50% actually. <laughs> it's over 50%. I mean, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, and not, okay, here, here's the thing. When you grow up thinking, oh, that can't be me. That's just something I hear on the news. And like you're hearing it in my, in your circle. And it's not just something you hear about someone in a faraway land, it's in your own backyard. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is, it's a, it is a bit discouraging. So the thing that I see and just being practicing, uh, cause I've, I've practiced for almost 20 years and there's been a shift since I started practicing. When I started practicing, a lot of the baby boomers were getting divorces. So you were seeing marriages of 30 years, 25 years, over 30 years splitting up. But now the relationships, People are unhappy. They're getting divorced. Divorce is so accessible now. Um, and the courts are so accessible like they've never been before. People just end their relationships. Easy. People do not stay in their relationships long. Why is that? Like from your I think experience. that's just society. Society is such temporary. You know, look at the technology. Everything is so temporary. Yeah. Well, something new is going to come around. Or this isn't working. I'll just go buy something new. Same thing with a marriage. That's what I see in my office. Now, I mean, I guess the, on the flip side of things, at least people are still getting married. People are still getting <laughs> at least married. people still are getting married. I think less and less people are getting married though. Yeah. I think a lot of people are doing common law relationships because yeah. the way the uh, law goes for myself, family law, it's very, <laughs> it's very exhaustive when you're married and you realize, oh yeah, the family law act says we're going to get 50%. So um, a lot of people stay common law. They want to keep things separate. A lot of cohabitation agreements, a lot of domestic contracts, marriage contracts, prenuptial agreements. People need, there's a lot of money in society um, that people need to protect. There's inheritances. People are inheriting their mortgage-free homes and then a spouse comes in and then automatically it's 50-50. So you'll see a lot more contracts than, than not in, like that I've seen in, in years past. So it's a much more protected yeah. type of yeah. relationship now. That's definitely discouraging. <laughs> yeah, um, it but, is. I mean, it, it, it is, but um, 
I, I guess like, like you said, like there's a lot more protection. It gives you a lot more knowledge now. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think it's education that people didn't have Yes, exactly. at, at a certain time. So at least, um, you know, in today's society, we're much more educated and, you know, we're at least we can, you know, think a few times before getting ourselves into something. And I think um, people just know that they have options now. People know that they have options. No longer are the, the females that are getting married. They have to be you know, t- staying that relationship. There's the child support guidelines, there's spousal support, the court's very protective of those rights and uh, financially protecting the rights of children. Um, so yeah, again, I guess it's just accessible and people have options. So I think that's very, they're very aware now. Correct. Your um, your law firm is Kerr Law, K-I-R. Uh, what does that stand for? So KIR is something that I developed a few years ago with my um, my lawyer coaching business. Um, it stands for Knowledge Investment Return. So when I was uh, coaching young lawyers, I would just, I think that if you have the proper knowledge and you invest time and effort and focus in your business, then you're going to get that return. And so that's where I came up with KIR. And I just really like it. My foundation was called KIR Foundation, and that stood for Kelly is Real. My book title, my working book title is uh, I Am Real. And um, it just, it all flows together with, um, you know, my story is a real story. The victims are real, real. The survivors are real. Their needs are real. So that was why the foundation was called Kelly is Real. However, we wanted to reach a broader audience with the foundation and we wanted to make sure that it wasn't localized. So um, we changed the name, the board, we voted on it. We changed the name to Survivors Unleashed International. That's the name of your, your organization. Yes, that's the name of the organization now. It was KIR Foundation, but then we changed it to Survivors International. Survivors Unleashed International. And what is Survivors Unleashed International? Survivors Unleashed International is uh, our not-for-profit that basically is there. Our mission is to provide long-term financial support to survivors of sex trafficking who are attending post-secondary educational programs. So one of the requirements we have for applicants is that they've already been accepted and or attending their post-secondary education because we want them to be committed. When I look back at my life, I wasn't committed a year out of trafficking. I wasn't committed two years out of trafficking. I became committed when I was like, okay, I need to economically change my future for my son. And that's when I was physically, mentally, you know, you name it. I was fully committed to my future and we want people to be committed to their future. It's very hard to get out of the lifestyle. It is very hard. Um, You might, you know, the adult people that were trafficked in their youth, they're doing it out of survival because they feel like they have no other option. And then the people that are, are out and they could be going to school, they don't have any money. So, or if anything else comes, it's very hard to cope with challenges. So sometimes return to life if their economics are challenged during a transition. Um, a lot of people who might be transitioning into a new life because of the the depression, the recurring depression because of the trauma will try to hurt themselves if they don't see any hope because the coping skills are just not there. So we want to be that 
that big sister, big brother to anybody who's going through this transition. We want to be there. If you can't buy groceries because you're in school, we'll buy you groceries. <laughs> if you need a bursary to help buy you books, we'll buy your books. If you can't pay your rent this month or buy Christmas presents for your son and you're in school, we will buy those presents for you. Like we want to be there to help because these are these are real experiences that I had to go through. You know, I remember going through law school. I had no money. My parents would bring me bags of groceries on Fridays for so my son could eat. I would make meals that would last two days for him and I wouldn't eat. I would have tea and wouldn't eat because I didn't have the money. One month I would pay the light bill, one month I would pay the cable bill. So either or, I either had cable one month or didn't have it. The, I became friends with the cable guy who was there to disconnect my cable so many times. Like those are little things that you need help with when you're going to school right. and you need support with because people coming in that life, they don't usually have the support of families because they're in there because of what happened with their families. I was fortunately very happy, you know, my family, after my son came along and they knew that I was, you know, helping myself, they were very, you know, helpful and and getting me through school. And the longer I was in school, the more they helped. So they were pretty happy by the time I became a lawyer and started making money. <laughs> Once your family actually finally did hear the story, what was their reaction? Um, they were not happy that I talked about childhood abuse. Um, they, you know, and the way that I delivered it, because I was terrified to come public with my story. I had to do it in one f big swoop. I had joined Tony Robbins uh, Platinum Partners last year and um, he had counseled me in July. Actually, I joined their Platinum Partners is where you just travel around with Tony and, and this group of people that are wonderful people that you just go to all the events with and you really do self-development and healing, whatever it is that you're trying to do. You're getting advice from not only Tony, but other people that are going through their own struggles and people are really telling you how to process things and whatever. So and Tony had counseled me like in front of 10,000 people in Chicago and was like, why are you limiting yourself? Like, what do you need to tell yourself? What are three things that you need to tell yourself that you can actually achieve what it is that you're trying to achieve? And just those little tiny questions and that prompting by this big person called Tony Robbins was he's just pretty, enough. He's pretty tall. Oh God, he's big. He's a big guy. He's a big guy. Yeah. <laughs> big voice, big guy, big effect. Yeah. Um, so, you know, going around with this group of people just gave me the strength to actually just do it. Um, one of the events that he makes you stand on a telephone pole and jump off the telephone pole. He says, you know, look at that telephone pole as a metaphor of what you need to overcome. And one of the things that I needed to overcome was coming public with my story and talking about why was I homeless at 17? Um, why was I targeted? And my family um, did not know about it. I, I, I could have delivered it better to my family. So um, I didn't, and I hurt some feelings and there's still some bad feelings there, but because they're hurt, their feelings are hurt. I didn't really consider in my need to have the strength to come out and, and do this for my charity. I never considered their feelings. So, you know, it was hard. It, it still is hard. We, we, I just don't talk about it with my family, what's going on in my charity and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. Um, one, so there's this quote that I really like. Um, it's like a quote that's been resonating with me a lot lately and I've been living by it. And, I, and when I hear your story, I, all I hear is this quote. Um, it said, uh, be who you needed when you were younger. Be who you needed to be when you were younger. Yeah, be who you needed when you were younger. It's going to make me emotional. And and when when I when I keep thinking about your story, you're you're in a very great place now, and I'm happy to see it. I can see it in you. You look well. And when you look back, do you, you still ask yourself why me or why not me? No, I don't. I don't ask that question anymore. I know that 
in my soul, I needed to be in that spot. I needed to go through what I've gone through in order to be the woman that I am today. Every single one of those experiences that I endured and went through in my youth and in my adulthood, I needed to go through because the universe gives you what you need. You might not want it (laughs) when you want it, but the universe always gives you what you need. So it was, that was my plan. I mean, that was God's plan. I I say that it was God's plan for that to happen to Kelly, for that to happen to me, because it needed to put me where I am today. And that is being an advocate for this horrible, horrible phenomenon that's in our world and being that person that I needed when I was there. I needed that person to be saying, to help lift me up, to help me get through. And that's what I want to be for people. So I'm incredibly appreciative of my experiences. I don't have any victimhood from anything anymore, any longer. Was it difficult to to keep faith in God? Uh, I was brought up in the church, so no, um, it wasn't. And then when I was on the street early in my turnout time, a lady came by and she came and talked to me and we weren't allowed to talk to people. And so I was trying to get away from her and she kept saying to me, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you to have a guardian angel to keep you safe. And I'll never forget that, that one moment in that time of this woman saying, you know, I love you and I'm going to pray for you and you're going to be taken care of with a guardian angel. And I was taken care of by a guardian angel. And that only strengthened my belief when I was not picked that night to be killed. Yeah, I know I was. I was watched by a guardian angel in Ottawa. I was watched by a guardian angel every time I escaped and they, you know, kidnapped me and beat me. And I, I, I was just watched over. It was something other than myself. It wasn't just me. So in short, my strength was, or my, um, my faith was strengthened over the years. There's many themes that resonate with this story, but this is one of the greatest stories I have ever heard, which is why I invited you here. Um, and just to see your perspective going through all these situations. And I hope that, you know, I hope that anyone who needs the strength um, from listening to this can get that and will get that. But when I listen to this, your story, like now that I have all these details, like I'm wondering, why is this not a movie? <laughs> That's what my book agent is saying. <laughs> why is this not There's a movie? There's going to be movie rights. <laughs> oh, There'll be it, movie rights. Are, are you currently, do you have anything in, in the works? So no, my agent, I have an agent, a transatlantic agent, Rob Firing, who is my um, book agent and my um, speaking agent. And he is busily working on getting me a deal for my book. And uh, for movie rights, he's, he's, he does that. He does international book rights and um, publishing rights and movie rights. So I, that is not my world. So I have a professional that does that. And um, my book is in process and we have a documentary coming out or I have a documentary coming out. I'm a part of a documentary that's coming out in January and February. It's called Outlaw Land. It's called... Um, yeah, it's called Outline Land. It's uh, highlighting uh, sex trafficking around the world. It follows a girl from in Thailand. They go to Thailand, then they come back to Canada because, you know, the producer is very shocked that it's happening in Canada so prevalently. So I, I'm that's going to be released. It's a CBC docuseries um, sponsored by Bell Media, and it's coming out in February. So that's probably, you know, my book agent, I'll be getting lots more press because of that Um it's probably going to be around the time when my agent gets very busy. Yes, yes, no, and I'm I'm looking, I'm excited to watch that. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and you know what? Like 
for you blessing me to be being on my podcast today, I will do everything in my power to make sure that this can one day one be a movie. <laughs> I, I, I will do what nice. I can. I will I will do what I can. There, if you know, we we've covered you know quite a bit today, and this is you know this has been remarkable. I'm gonna have to. I got to sit with it for a couple of days. And Sorry. No, 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 not at all. It's like, so much. No, it's so heavy. I, this is what I want. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, this is what I want on this. But I want people to hear the stories. Like I said, it's, and we need to hear this perspective. We need to see the world from your, your lens, because if there's people that are going through similar things, or if there's people that are going through any sort of hardship, knowing that you can go from being down and out and, you know, triumph and success. So I, I, and I, I'm I'm truly grateful for this opportunity. Um, before we go, I want to ask you if for anyone who is listening, for anyone who, whatever their situation may be, whatever sort of barriers they have, whatever it may be, where can they find that hope to get out? There's a saying that we say, and I say to myself that all we need is already within ourselves. So they need to find the hope within themselves. But first we often look externally, um, reach out. You just have to ask for help. Once you ask for help, the help will come flooding in. Don't be afraid to reach out to police officers. Um, they're very educated now in, in, in helping survivors and victims of sex trafficking. Just let people know where you are. Don't be afraid to reveal the dirty little secret that you have. That dirty little secret can just help you along your life. And if, if I hadn't been afraid, I, God knows what I would have done. But if I was a youth in this world where everybody is aware of the problem and want to help, and there's so many organizations that help that we didn't have, just tell somebody, tell anybody Every person that's a professional is trained in helping survivors. So just reach out and, and, and grab onto something and then look inside yourself because everything you need is already within you. Everything, all the hope, all the faith, all the love. You don't need to get it from anybody. You already have it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Very well said. So Vanessa, I really want to thank you for coming onto the podcast. Um, for those who would like to follow you on social media, how can they go about finding you? They can find me on uh, Instagram at the Vanessa Jazz. They can find me on Facebook at the Vanessa Jazz, uh, LinkedIn. It's all the Vanessa Jazz. So Vanessa J-A-S-S. -S, that's how you find me. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And, uh, and thank you for the listeners for listening and tuning in. And we hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you have a great week. Until next time.